Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 520 of them now. And if this, new, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. Um, this program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to contribute to its support, there is a PayPal button on every page of the website. My guest today is Mirabai Starr. I interviewed Mirabai five years ago, in person that time also at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. And that interview was very impromptu. We were eating dinner and, uh, and she introduced herself and she said, Mirabai Starr. I said, Mirabai Starr, I've heard so much about you. Let's do an interview. And so we just kind of went to the room and did an interview. It was cold. I know Mirabai a lot better now, and um, we're going to cover completely different information than we did in the first one, although you might want to loop back and watch the first one also. That was more biographical, about the story of your life and all. One advantage of doing interviews at the SAND conference is I get to do them in person, and one disadvantage is that there's so many things to prepare for leading up to the conference that I don't get to prepare for each interview as thoroughly as I usually do when I only do them once a week. So... Unfortunately, I haven't read Mirabai's book in its entirety, but she's such an accomplished interviewee that I trust she will guide us through this discussion and will cover all the points we want to cover. Firstly, let me um, read a bio of her. Mirabai writes creative nonfiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico Taos for 20 years and now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and interspiritual dialogue. A certified bereavement counselor, Mirabai helps mourners harness the transformational power of loss. She has received critical acclaim for her revolutionary new translations of the mystics, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, and Julian of Norwich. She is the award-winning author of God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Caravan of No Despair, A Memory of Loss and Transformation, and Mother of God, Similar to Fire, a collaboration with iconographer William Hart McNichols. Her latest book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, was published in the spring of 2019. She lives with her extended family in the mountains of northern New Mexico, namely Taos. So welcome, Mirabai. Thanks, Rick. It's so good to be with you again. Oh, it's great. You've made a career out of understanding the lives of mystics and translating their works and so on. I heard you say in a talk yesterday that it was harder to do this book than you thought it was going to be because the information in it about various women mystics had been kind of suppressed presumably by the patriarchal society, which has dominated Western culture for a couple thousand years, and maybe Eastern culture as well. So maybe that would be a good little trigger to get you started. Why it has been suppressed or concealed, and how women mystics have had a harder time of it than male mystics in terms of uh, you know persecution and... Um, dismissal as being sort of insignificant perhaps mm. and things like that and we'll we'll get in the course of this discussion we'll get into how the tides are turning now and and there's a a, a rebalancing taking place in the world 
Mm-hmm. Well, you just said so many rich things in that, in that, like, let's see, which stream to draw from. So yes, when I first was asked to write this book by my publisher, Sounds True, I thought it would be fun, you know, looking for the, teach, the wisdom of the feminine across the spiritual traditions, not from any one particular tradition. And as you well know, and I don't know if, if others uh, who are watching know, that's my thing, is drawing from the wellspring of multiple spiritual traditions. I've always felt at home. Among yeah. You know, I just want to interject that you gave a great talk at Sand two or three years ago called Bees in the Garden. Mm. And it was all about how bees, you know, go from flower to flower, extracting the nectar from many flowers. And like that, you know, we can extract the nectar from many different spiritual traditions without being dilettantes. You know, we can, right. we can go deeply at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And that, in fact, that whole messaging that many of us have received... One that hole. somehow, yeah, that something to dig one hole to to just stay with one tradition to really get to the true transmission. Mm-hmm. I bought into that for a long time, thinking that there was something wrong with me because I was temperamentally incapable uh-huh. of choosing one particular tradition. It almost felt like when I tried, I was betraying a covenant with my beloved, as I really feel the divine as beloved and that I was somehow trapping my beloved in a little box, and it just seemed wrong. And, and yet that was, that's what people were, people I respected deeply were saying. Like, it's very nice that you're attracted to all these different traditions, but eventually you'll grow up spiritually. <laughs> so it, it, well, that was part of my rebellion, my subversive experience in the last, very recently. I mean, I started on the spiritual path when I was, 14 years old, I'm 58, and it took me until my early 40s to finally claim my spiritual attraction, my attraction to multiple spiritual traditions as not only not precluding depth, but being my deep path. Mm. But anyway, so... um, Just to quickly comment on that, my attitude would be that if a person is inclined to focus exclusively on one thing, great. Yes, great. But if they're not, great. You know, to each his own. <laughs> exactly, Rick. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a matter of, of spiritual temperament. Mm-hmm. And, and mine is, um, is polyamorous. <laughs> so, looking for the teachings of feminine wisdom across the spiritual tradition seemed like just perfect for mm-hmm. me. Um, but I did discover, as you alluded to, that those teachings, those wisdom teachings of the feminine and by women had been buried, and that is not a quinky dink. They were buried on purpose mm. and by the patriarchal structures for whom they were very threatening. And, and I really got, Rick, that the world's religions were not the spiritual impulse that gave rise to those religions, but the religious structures, the yeah. institutions, were built by and for men. Largely. Yeah. You know, another thought that comes up with that is that usually administrative types end up taking over religions. And they are not the mystics who founded the religions. Mm -hmm. And administrative types, they get nervous around mystics. You know, mystics sort of shake their world a bit. And so I think there's been a tendency in most religions to bury all the mystics, you know, if possible. And perhaps bury the the women first and then bury the men as well. perfectly leads into what I, what I was thinking as you were talking, what I was feeling, which is that mysticism in and of itself is feminine. 
So when I speak about masculine and feminine, I'm not just talking about men and women. Um, I'm speaking to the feminine in all of us, and I'm speaking from the feminine that that transcends the bodies that we inhabit. So I'm speaking to that thirst for the feminine that I see so clearly rising more and more in women, in men, and in people of all genders and no gender identification. It's still a longing for this feminine wisdom way. And the mystics reside in that feminine space. And what I mean by that is that the mystics are about paradox and the law, for instance, the fundamental paradox to me in the mystical um, way is the paradox of the longing that is the portal to union. You know, when Rumi speaks about the cry of longing is the, is the answering response of the beloved, that's the path of the mystics, is that it's, it's rooted in the heart's yearning for union with the absolute, which is characterized as love. That's the ground of all the mystics, I think, is love. And that love longing is the way to union with the beloved. It's not like it's preventing us from recognizing our essential unity with the beloved. It opens the way. So when you say mysticism is feminine, is that because you associate such qualities as longing and love and so on with with the feminine? Not exclusively, but yes, in men too. Like John of the Cross, Mm -hmm. San Juan de la Cruz, who I've translated, as you know, Dark Night of the Soul was my first book. And it was a translation and commentary on on that gorgeous text. John of the Cross was a feminine mystic in my mind. Rumi was a feminine mystic in my mind. John of the Cross didn't write this text, Dark Night of the Soul, as originally as a as a guide for awakening, although it is it did end up becoming that. He wrote it as a love poem to God originally. It's an eight stanza poem. And then the sisters for whom he was confessor in this convent he, mm-hmm. where he lived begged him to explain this erotic, juicy, passionate love poem about the secret rendezvous of lover and beloved in the garden as a guide to to the path of union with the one. And so he did. He wrote this incredible classic prose treatise on the dark night of the soul on navigating this very mature spiritual state of of neti neti, of stripping, of becoming spiritually naked. Why? Not to flex our spiritual muscles like I can hang out in this emptiness, but rather so that we could have a naked encounter with the beloved. It's harder to make love when you got your clothes on. (laughs) So I speak of Santa Teresa de Avila, St. Teresa of Avila, as the matron saint of this book. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I would say the two primary guiding feminine beings, wisdom figures for, for Wild Mercy, are St. Teresa of Avila as a human being and the Shekhinah in Judaism as, a, an, it, um, I was going to say, a disembodied, feminine wisdom being, but she's all about embodiment. But the Mm. Shekhinah is the indwelling feminine face of of the absolute, of the divine. And who is this on the cover? 
Who is that on the cover? So that is Leela Downs. Mm-hmm. And Leela Downs, some people say Lila Downs, mm-hmm. is a contemporary um, singer-songwriter, protest singer from Mexico. She's the one who spoke at Sand the other day. No. Yes? No, that was different. I'm sorry. Oh, maybe Mona. Mona. Yeah, yeah. Mona Hadar. Yeah. Well, so. that was a Native American girl. Oh, oh, right. So that was Lila June. Okay. These Lila, are all my Lila, girls. Lila, Lila. Lila, okay. Lila, right. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I bring, I collect young women leaders. Mm. I don't mean to, but I just do. <laughs> there, there are all these incredible young women who are rising. Mm-hmm. Their voices are rising. They have, it. They have this deep wisdom mm. and clarity and ferocity mm-hmm. and um, and they're all, uh, many of them are finding their way into my sphere. Yeah. Meaning I have nothing, I, I don't have a thing. I don't have a, a wisdom school. I'm just nearby. I make tea and, and I listen to them speak about their road, the road that they're traveling, which is often exceedingly challenging yeah. as young women, often women of color. I'll be, in, I'll be in touch with you about them. We'll get some of them on back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They they are coming in, Rick, with this with this fierce wisdom that is just blowing me away. So I'm trying to give those prophets a drink of water mm-hmm. is all I can say in there. And they're finding their their way to me and I try to to hold them for a minute so that they can keep doing what they're doing. Mm. So anyway, Leela Downs is the, the cover of Wild Mercy is this beautiful kind of icon that was painted by this another young woman activist artist. Leela Downs, the singer-songwriter whose, whose image this is, is an activist art, singer. And then the woman who painted it is an activist artist named Erin Courier. Mm-hmm. And Erin's art is extraordinary. I just encourage everybody to look her up, Erin Courier. She's also a rising star in the art world, but all of her art is about activists and mystics, Mm. which to her and to many women is the same thing. Yeah, that's a cool point in itself that we could get into because often they have been considered to be on other poles, but there's a mystical activism or an active mysticism or something that's that's coming to the fore these days. And that's my way. way. And I don't want to be. I did not want to be an activist. I just wanted to be a contemplative. I just wanted to be a meditator and and someone who spoke with passion about the passion of the mystics, the poetry, the the land of the heart. Mm. And um, I, like so many of us and so many who are probably watching, have felt the call resounding through every fiber of my being to step up. And so I, I teach a lot, guided by all these women mystics that I've come to love, about this blend of taking refuge and stepping up, taking refuge in the depth and beauty, in the beauty of these great teachings mm. and teachers and poetry, and then stepping up, taking refuge, stepping up. In many ways, to me, that is the way of the feminine. It's a way of holding and nurturing and then fierce prophetic rising. Mm. And, and all of the women in this book for me are models of that intertwining of the prophetic and the contemplative. So Leela Downs is on the cover. Aaron Courier is the artist. The book is filled with women like both of them who have 
throughout history and right now, because there are quite a few contemporary exemplars of, of the feminine way uh, in this book, um, across the spiritual traditions who are embodying and modeling the essence of the feminine path of, of awakening and service. So St. Teresa of Avila. So why do I call her my matron saint? She is one who came to me kind of of her, it almost feels like of her own volition. Like John of the Cross was my guy. I loved the teachings of the dark night of the soul, the purity and nakedness of that classic wisdom teaching. But Teresa of Avila was John of the Cross's teacher. She was his mentor. She was his spiritual guide. And because of his respect for her, I felt like I had to investigate her. And once I did, she became deeply dear to me. And that's partly because, so I told you that Dark Night of the Soul was my first book. So I know you know this, Rick, but um, maybe others don't, that on the day that that book, my first of 15, came out, my daughter Jenny was killed in a car accident. In fact, tomorrow is the 18th anniversary of Jenny's death. Mm. And the coinciding of this traumatic loss of my beloved child with the release into the world of these teachings on the transformational power of, of suffering has guided my way ever since. And it's guided my way into the mystery, not out of the mystery, but deep into the heart of what we don't know. And I have found myself at home in not knowing in a way that, um, that I used to write about and thought I knew. But I ended up knowing from, from the depths of that fire that stripped away everything that I thought before. All my belief structures crumbled in the, with the death of my daughter. And into that space came a book contract to translate The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila. And so from 16th century Spanish to contemporary English. And so Teresa accompanied me through that first year of mourning. And through that companionship, we have become so intimate that she is now with me all the time. Mm. To translate a masterwork of a mystic is to have living darshan every day. That's a good point. I mean, you really have to, to whatever extent you can, align yourself with their experience, you know, kind of experience what they were experiencing to whatever extent you can. Otherwise, you really can't do justice to the translation. That's right. And that's been an unfortunate fact about translations and commentaries and so on throughout the ages. There's that saying, knowledge crumbles on the hard rocks of ignorance, where, Mm. you know, some great teacher comes out with some deep experience which inspires him to come out and start teaching and everybody listens from their level of consciousness and here's a completely different thing right. and then you know he dies and then they pass it on and they die and it, you know it's like the party game where you, you pass a message around the circle and by the time it gets back to you it's something completely different and yet there's also a living truth that is meant to be um, it's fluid and it's meant to to find the shape of the container that that it flows into. Mm. 
And so in, in many ways, I think that all of us who receive these great wisdom teachings across the spiritual traditions are meant to galvanize them in the crucible of our own hearts to mix my alchemical metaphors <laughs> and see what shape they take in our lives. And that's not to say that we're supposed to, to um, blithely appropriate wisdom teachings that have their home in deep root traditions for our own purposes, like the whole prosperity thing, mm-hmm. you know. The Buddha's last words were, be lamps unto yourselves, mm-hmm. cultivate your own awakening with diligence or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. I'm a translator. I can translate uh-huh. that however I want. But that's not an accident, and that's not an excuse to be sloppy about it. Yeah. You know? But with the rigor of contemplative practice and a continual coming back to the heart, I trust us to take these wisdom teachings and make them authentically ours. And I don't mean that in an individualistic way. That's one of the artifacts of the masculine paradigm to me is this individualistic, my awakening, my liberation, Mm. my salvation, um, my redemption, but rather find our awakening in the web of interbeing that supports us. Mm. Yeah, and also what comes to mind as you're speaking, maybe this is part of what you're saying, was that it doesn't really do us any good if this, that, or the other saint had such and such an experience three, four hundred years ago. We have to have it, or it has to be alive now for us to whatever extent it can be. Otherwise, it's just a story. I agree. And yet the stories of these beings' lives can be so... They're catalysts. For, there can be catalysts. Yeah. There's so many stories about Teresa. You want me to just yeah, tell, us, tell one? Everyone loves stories. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's see, which, which of the many? Um, the one that's coming to my mind is what is often called her second conversion. Mm-hmm. Presumably as a Christian, she had already converted her heart to love of Christ. By the way, she was Jewish. Originally, yeah. Yeah, originally. She was the first generation converso family that was forced by the Spanish Inquisition to convert or be exiled or executed. Mm -hmm. And in fact, her her grandfather nearly lost his life by secretly practicing Judaism in the home Mm -hmm. and being called out by a neighbor. But actually, it wasn't even her grandfather. He was the one who who was accused. But in in Jewish homes, it's the women who preside over religious practices. So it was probably her grandmother lighting the candles of Shabbat. So anyway, Teresa's so-called second conversion experience, which is what I'm feeling inclined to share right now, is so inspiring to me because she entered the convent at 18 only because she didn't know what else to do with her life. Her mother had died in childbirth with her ninth child at the age of 33. And Teresa was 12. So I think she must have looked at that life of wife and mother and decided that was not what she wanted. But she was very beautiful and very, you know, attractive to many people. People just were always falling in love with Teresa her whole life, actually. Mm -hmm. And she felt like that was going to imperil her mortal soul, you know, the fact that everyone was always falling in love with her and that she was falling in love, I'm sure, back because it's, it's very hard to not respond, nor should we not respond. But that's another story I wish I got into tell Teresa. It's okay, honey, you can let yourself be in love. You're not going to hell for being in love. Anyway, she signed on to a convent, and she was in the convent for 20 years before she had her 
any sense of a spiritual, personal spiritual experience. Mm. She did, as a very young woman, have a lot of spiritual experiences, even as a child. But by the time she entered the convent, like religion can just shut you down spiritually, right? Yeah. And it did. Ironically. And so she, at the age of um, 39, she was uh, the, at that point the abbess of this convent, and she was bustling through a, a hallway one day and saw a statue of Christ being scourged, not growing up in Christianity, I don't even know how to say that word, Scour, scourged. Whipped. Yeah, that's better, yeah. at the pillar. Mm-hmm. So that was what the statue was. And, and he was looking up, mm. and she looked down at him looking up, and all of a sudden, their eyes locked. Mm. You know, this statue that she was just going to pick up and go take to its proper spot. And in that moment of, the, of her gaze and his gaze meeting, her hard heart, as she says, mm. melted mm. and opened. And the floodgates opened. Mm. And the waters of passionate love and longing came flooding through, and she was down on the floor, fully prostrate, danda pranam, Mm. crying out to her beloved, saying, I had no idea that you loved me like this, because that's what she saw in his eyes. She saw unconditional love and longing and pain and peace, all in the same gaze. And that unlocked her. And it was only after that that she, all her famous visions and voices and raptures and ecstasies, all the things she's so well known for, came. Hmm. So around age 40, which seems to be a real, um, a very important turning point in the lives of many mystics. I mean, Francis of Assisi received the stigmata, I think, at 40. Hildegard of Bingen really had her awakening, the great uh, medieval Rhineland visionary at 40. Um, So many, uh, the prophet Muhammad, uh, many people had profound awakening experiences right around the age of 40. Interesting. Not all, but many. No, no. I mean, Christ died at 33, and so did did Shankara. Yeah. Around, oh, really? around that age, 32, actually. Shankar, really? Yeah, he was commentating on the Upanishads at the age of 12 and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, That yeah. than which no greater can be conceived, Shankar. Just at breakfast, we happened to be talking about St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila levitating together. Yeah. That's interesting. Why do you think that happened? Uh, it, it, presuming that actually did happen. Right. And there are stories from all over the world of, of, of it happening. Yeah. Why? How? What would the mechanics of that be? So in the case of the stories of the two of them levitating, mm-hmm. the one that, that we know of is that they were awake all night talking in the convent kitchen yeah. by the fire. And the kind of talk that you do with your spiritual, deepest spiritual companion. And in the morning when one of the sisters came in to prepare tea for the morning. They were still there, leaning toward each other, still deep in ecstatic conversation about God, and their chairs were five feet off the floor. Wow. This is part of Teresa's canonization hearings, mm. uh, that this was reported. And whether or not that physically happened, I feel that that story encapsulates the beauty of spiritual companionship and the depth and power of the meeting of two souls 
And I, I so deeply encourage people to cultivate the kind of friendships where you can have those head-to-head, heart-to-heart conversations around the fire that lift us both up. Mm. And to me, that, that story is the embodiment of the power of spiritual friendship to uplift us together. That's nice. That's kind of what I try to do at that gap. <laughs> you do, Rick. Yeah. It's totally what you do, and I'm feeling it right now. In fact, a little while oh, ago... I think I started, you started to rise up. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Don't worry. You know what Teresa used to say when she'd feel herself rise? What? She would tell the, the women around her to hold her down. Because she didn't want to show off. That, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes she'd find herself up in the air, and then she would look around and say, put me down, talking to God. She had no problem talking back to God. We won't get into it right now because I don't think either of us could really comment on it, but I'm very interested in the physics of that, how that would actually work in terms of the laws of nature and gravity and all that stuff. I think it probably didn't. I think it did. Did it? Yeah, I think there are so many stories from every culture of the world. I have a friend who wrote a book about them and oh, yeah. you know, collecting dozens, hundreds maybe, of, of oh. different stories from every culture. Of defying the laws of physics. Yeah, or by levitating specifically. Oh, specifically. Yeah. St. Joseph of Cupertino was a very famous one also, but many others. It's a tangent, but it says something about the fundamental nature of consciousness, that it's not merely a product of the brain, that it must somehow be something fundamental to the universe and, and even more fundamental than the various laws of nature that conduct various processes in the universe, Mm -hmm. because it would have to be from there that you could affect an influence that could cause the body to levitate. I know this is a tangent, but just to go with it a little bit more, I think what's even more interesting than mm-hmm. defying the laws of physics... Not defying. Airplanes don't defy the laws of physics, although we once would have thought they did, but just okay. utilizing the laws in different ways than is customarily... Okay, then I'm going to think about that differently. Because what I was going to say that feels truly significant and not tangential to this conversation is that when we look at the stories of the lives of these mystics and other wisdom beings, because I also speak about goddesses and wild mercy. The literal aspects of their stories are not, to me, the most significant part, but what they awaken in our hearts. Like, sure. like that John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila spiritual conversation thing, or the fact that, like Tara in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, was born in the legend of Tara from the tears of the Buddha Mm -hmm. who looked upon the suffering of the world and wept. Mm. And one of his tears became the white Tara, the bodhisattva of boundless mercy and compassion. So I don't actually think of the Buddha as this this celestial dude in some kind of heavenly geography crying and his tear became a goddess. But rather, when I hear that story, when I tell that story, I feel in my own being, in my own broken, open mother heart, the suffering of the whole world and how that is distilled down into an essence that becomes an offering of love and mercy in the world. The feeling that that triggers in me is um, kind of an objection to the rather cold neo-advaita attitude sometimes that the world is just an illusion and doesn't matter what happens to it and that kind of thing. And the the real greats, you know, in in the spiritual luminaries, in the spiritual firmament have 
been very compassionate people with great hearts and great devotion. Devotion, yeah. exactly. And including all the ones that are often cited as exemplars of non-duality, yeah. Papaji and Nisargadatta and Ramana and yeah. many others, they just had these tremendous hearts, and that's not what, always what came through in the, in the books about them. That's so true, Rick, and I, t- I really take that on in Wild Mercy, the Neo-Advaita Maybe we should talk about it for a minute. Yeah. So I'd love to read a little something from Wild Mercy about non-duality. Okay. From a feminine lens. Ever since you first tasted the elixir of nobodiness, maybe in the midst of meditating or grieving, you've lost your hunger for somebodiness. Mainstream culture conditioned you to construct a persona and defend it with all your might. The endless self-improvement project, fueled by self-loathing and foiled by the realities of the human condition, has only reinforced the illusion that you are separate from your source. But a combination of spiritual practice and tragic losses ended that game. You, for one, are relieved to surrender. Your surrender is invisible. You still go through the motions of promoting your work on social media, You make an effort to limit your carbs, practice yoga, pick out interesting things to wear. But that's not because you actually identify as an individual being, detached from all other beings, or from the earth, or from the Holy One. You've come to understand that a functioning ego is a necessary vessel for an incarnate soul. You don't regard your ego as a problem. You just don't take it seriously which used to piss your ego off, given its self-important nature. But she's getting used to it. When you were young, you recognized ultimate reality as beloved, and you developed a powerful crush. Over the decades, your roles reversed and reversed again. You were the seeker. You were the sought. Eventually, in moments of deep stillness or unbearable anguish, Lover and beloved melded. Only love remained. This state of suchness looked like emptiness, but felt like plenitude. You came to understand that not only have you been connected to your beloved all along, but that you are that which you had been seeking. You had expected God to be the prize you would collect after all the hard work of seeking God. It turns out that the object you thought of as you does not exist, which means the subject you called God is not real either. You would have anticipated such an insight to be devastating, but it isn't. It's amusing. Chuckling at the cosmic joke, you get on with business. There are temples to build, curricula to develop, sonatas to compose, startups to start up. You did not buy your equanimity cheaply. Frequent firestorms, eradicated your opinion on the matter. Multiple meltdowns led you to a place where your only option was to melt. Who knew that dissolving would be so sweet? Nice. Was that written about you? I mean, is that autobiographical sort of? Yeah, I mean, each chapter begins with a kind of prose poem invocation to -hmm. to the topic of the chapter because the book is topical, so it's... You know, cultivating a contemplative practice, a Sabbath, um, sexuality, creativity, parenting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a whole 
gamut uh, of, from the practical to the, to the most um, ecstatic. And to me, that's the way of the feminine is combining the, the grounded, earthy, getting shit done in the world with the, the heart that is available to the breaking in and the infusion of divine love at any and all times, like looking through the eyes of love and seeing love, cultivating that gaze mm-hmm. and, and also being able to, you know, get the kids to school and, um, and make a good meal and, and find time for sensuality and self-care and all of it at once. Service, service, service. Yeah. So this is the teachings of non-duality through a feminine lens. And when you spoke about the love and devotion of these beings, like Papaji, for instance, that people often forget, you know, that, that he was a Krishna Bhakta, right? He was Yes. And and I, I think that Ramana was a Kali Bhakta and I think also possibly Shankara was. Mm-hmm. They all had their Ishta Devatas. Right. Mm-hmm. And that whatever the Ishta Deva is, she or he, that um, aspect of the one particularized in a deity that has a, a kind of characteristic, like Krish- the love of Krishna, the transformational fire of Shiva, whatever, the Kalima, those become the portals to the boundless, undifferentiated suchness that isn't just a big empty void, mm-hmm. it's love. So I've always felt that the way of the feminine mystic, and, in, and as I said in the beginning, I feel like all mystics are in a way uh, residing in that feminine realm, is that love itself becomes the fire that melts the boundaries of the heart. And then we naturally lose our identification with a separate self and discover our essential birthright mm. of unity with the one who is love. I guess that's the difference, Rick. I feel like with Buddhism can be so cold. Mm-hmm. I have a Buddhist practice since I'm 15. I mean, I'm, there are so many things about Buddhism that work for me. Advaita Vedanta, you know, the fact that we are that, that mm-hmm. we yearn for. But the teachings have often been so masculinized and the emphasis being on transcendence, perfection, purification, as if we were impure, imperfect, bound to this world of illusion, as you said earlier. And so when we reclaim these great wisdom teachings through a feminine lens, it includes embodiment. It includes the ego. It includes relationship with each other and with the earth itself in a way that I feel like the masculinized religious institutions have prevented, that mm. somehow embodiment becomes a threat to those structures. I gave my talk at Sand yesterday on uh, the theme that reality is different at different levels of consciousness, and a lot of talk about paradox and how, how paradoxically opposite things can both be true. And I think it pertains to what you're just saying, where on the one hand, you know, there is only one, and it's sort of a seamless whole, indivisible, and so on and so forth. But Shankar said something along the lines of, uh, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) He said that? Yeah. Yay. Yeah, he told me personally. (laughs) (laughs) No, he said that. And when I hear that, what I think is, 
You know, we have various faculties as human entities, and one of those is the heart. And my understanding of spiritual development is it's a full development or blossoming of all those faculties. And so somehow the heart has to have its due and has to be able to do what it does, which is experience love and devotion and so on. But love and devotion implies some sort of duality where you know, there's me loving this. And there's been long debates in India between the Hare Krishna types, the Krishna the Bhakti. Bhaktis, yeah. and the Vedanta types. I totally take that on in this yeah, book. Yeah, the Krishna people rip apart the Mayavadins, so to speak, and who are dismissing the world as Maya. But I think that it's kind of like the old Surts commercial, you know, it's two mints in one. There's a, <laughs> if you're old enough to remember <laughs> That's that. That's old. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to the 50s. In any case, these things are not, conflicting and contradictory. They can be harmonized and reconciled within a larger perspective. So that is very much the theme of this book, exactly what you're saying. Would you say the Shankara quote again? The intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. I heard that from Maharishi in 1970. Oh, really? Some course. But, and the implication is that devotion for even somebody like Shankara or Ramana or any of the others, no matter how non-dual they may have been, was important. And I think when we talk about devotion, we kind of associate, even though we're referring to men here, we're referring to what we would ordinarily call a feminine quality. Mm -hmm. I think you would. Mm -hmm. I would. And so these guys (laughs) wanted to incorporate that sweet feminine quality within their experience, needed to, I'd say, in the course of their development, which is kind of what you were also saying in the beginning. Well, I just want to reiterate that for me, devotion is the path to non-duality. That the fire of love melts the heart and then we dissolve into that which we have longed for. It's not like two different states. Yeah, and well, I don't want to keep talking about Maharishi so much, but in his cosmology, he actually talked about God consciousness as preceding unity consciousness, as almost a prerequisite to it. It was a sort of refinement of perception and the blossoming of the heart. And, and then, when then when that has reached its fruition, then you may cross the threshold into full non-dual Uh-oh. state. What? Okay. Without abandoning the devotion, but... Okay, yeah. good. And I, I agree. But I also think that's a boy-shaped theology. Probably so. Because what I find <laughs> is that often there are claims that somehow devotion is the precursor to non-dual consciousness, which implies that it's a lesser level. Mm. And what I find is that, at least in my own experience, and in the, the experience of many of these women mystics that I write about, their unitive experiences began with, with a, an impulse of the heart, of love. They found themselves in these unitive states that were beyond all qualities, not even ecstatic, not even nothing sweet. Use the word sweet. Not even that. Just sort of transcendent or absolute or unmanifest or something. Right, undifferentiated. Right. And then when they returned, as we inevitably do, because we're still incarnate beings, Mm -hmm. to so-called ordinary consciousness, albeit transformed somewhat, because how could you have an experience of union and not be transformed by it? there is often an experience afterwards of both pain and bliss, you know, mm. combined. Pain because it's, because we're back <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was 
Like coming back from a near-death experience or something. Yeah, like we want to stay there. And bliss because we merged with the beloved. And praise and gratitude for that. And that inspires... So a unitive experience inspires more devotion. Yeah. So it's a, it's a it's just an intertwining of yearning, union, longing, ecstasy, appreciation, all of it. I'll give you another quote, which is, um, contact with Brahman is infinite joy. You know, if we're lying in a bathtub, let's say, really still, we don't feel the warmth. That if we start sloshing around a little bit, then mm-hmm. we start feeling this warmth. So, um, you know, being able to sort of reside in Brahman or the totality or the absolute and then engaging in life, yeah. you know, in an, in an embodied state and interacting and mingling, it stirs up, it's that contact that kind of stirs it up yeah. and, and results in joy, which is really underrated underrated term because it's much more than joy. It would be mm-hmm. just waves, tidal waves of devotion. Beautiful. And... Another metaphor for you. If it's just a little pond, it can't rise up in tidal waves. It'll just stir up the mud or something. It can all do, do little, little ripples. But if the pond is, if it's a deep ocean, like the Pacific or something, then huge waves can arise. Um, and the ocean has the capacity to rise up in those waves and mm. enjoy them. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. So your name is Mirabai. Mm. And... Um, there's a very great saint named Mirabai who, whom you talk about in this book who people might not be as aware of as they are of, um, you know, St. Teresa or some of the others. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's hear a little bit about Mirabai. You were probably named after her, I right? I was. Yeah. I was. So Mirabai was also a 16th century woman mystic like Teresa Vavila. Mm-hmm. They were contemporaries, one in Spain and one in India. And I, I often think about the fact that they, they were both living it at literally the same time. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But should they would love to have met. <laughs> I think so. I like to think that they're having tea inside my heart yeah. right now. Chai. Yes, chai. So Mirabai came from a wealthy, privileged family mm-hmm. and was engaged at the age of zero, who knows, to be married Arranged. to some dude. Yeah. yeah. Arranged marriage. But when she was five or six years old, the story is that she was with her mother on the balcony of their mansion, (laughs) looking down at the street below where there was a wedding procession going by. Mm -hmm. And there were elephants, and they were all ornately adorned, and and the bride and the groom uh, were each on their their elephants side by side, and there was music and incense and flowers, and it just was so beautiful. You know how India, everything's a pageant. (laughs) And she looked at this scene and said, what's going on? And her mother said that these two people are to be married and they're going to love each other forever. Mm-hmm. And she said, will I, will I ever get married? Mm-hmm. And her mother said, you're already married to Lord Krishna. Mm-hmm. And she took her inside to the family puja table, the mm-hmm. altar to Krishna, the, the god of love, and invited her to do a little, a little puja, a little offering. And Mirabai asked if she could take the statue of Krishna that was on the altar with her. If she could just carry him around. Mm -hmm. And her mother said yes. So she carried him around and she continued throughout her childhood to always have Krishna with her Mm -hmm. under her pillow at night. Mm -hmm. And she forged this intimate love with the God of love. Mm -hmm. And so when it came time to be married at 16 to 
Prince Bodraj, who was, I don't know, in his 40s, she said, I'm already married. Yeah, Mom, you, t- you told me I That's was. That's right. That did not go over well with her family. Yeah. She was forced into marriage with this guy. And then she had to move into his household, which is the way in India. I think still in many places that the the woman moves into the household of... The, yeah, they just the join the, these extended families and yeah. live together. Yeah. But she had to live with his family and they did not appreciate her refusal to carry out her wifely duties mm-hmm. and to insist that she was married to Lord Krishna. And so the legend is that they kept trying to... First they tried to convince her, then they tr- persuade her, then they tried to bully her, mm-hmm. and finally they tried to kill her. Oh. And the legend is that they that they tried in three ways, they being probably her mother-in-law, mm-hmm. but maybe her brother-in-law. There are conflicting stories about that, probably both. And the first one was that they they de- uh, delivered a cup of nectar, fruit mm. nectar, to her, her room. But it was poison. But it was poison. Mm. And she drank it, and it was the sweetest, most nourishing thing ever. Mm. Then they delivered flowers to her room, and the flowers had a, a cobra uh, coiled in, in yeah. them. But the snake just became another flower. And then finally, they put poison nails under her bed with a cover of rose petals uh-huh. to so make it look like they lie were. on the nails. Yeah. yeah. And it was the most comfortable night's sleep she ever had. <laughs> so this is an example, Rick, of the stories that whether or not they happen doesn't matter to Yeah, they illustrate something. And they awaken something in the heart. Yeah. They illustrate something for the intellect, but more importantly, they awaken something in the heart, which is that, you know, love is is greater than all hatred and violence. And so eventually, Bodra, the prince went off to kill the moguls and mm-hmm. um, was killed in battle. Mm-hmm. And so Mirabai was supposed to commit sati, was supposed to... Right. Jump into a fire. Into the fire, and yes, and um, commit suicide if, for her husband, and she refused. And so she was banished, which was great. It's just what she wanted. <laughs> just what she'd been trying to get to all along. And she spent the rest of her life, she was still quite a young woman at mm-hmm. that point, the rest of her life barefoot, a single sari, a, a, a begging bull, and an ektar, an, or an ektara, which is a, staff. A, a single stringed instrument. Oh, one of those things, yeah. So it's a gourd. It, so it's a very simple, simplified kind of tambora. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a gourd with a, with a single string. So you can drum yeah. and play that one note. And she wandered the streets of northern India singing to her beloved mm. and uttering poetry very much like Rumi. Mm. It was spontaneous utterances of pure nectar poetry. Mm. And her followers would write them down. And she was also a singer, so she would... She would sing her poems, hmm. and she became deeply beloved in India in her lifetime and is still probably one of the most beloved women saints of, of India still, and her bhajans are still sung. Yeah. And I, um, so do you want me to tell my personal story sure. of how I was named? So when I was 13, my first boyfriend died, Philip. He was killed in a, in a gun accident. We lived in rural New Mexico, so... Guns, unfortunately, are quite common in in that rural environment. And he was my first love, and my heart was absolutely shattered. I'd already lost my brother uh, a few years before to cancer, my older brother, and now my first love. And I was in this very shattered state, obviously. Oh, so I went to this hippie 
alternative school in Taos. That was run by Lama Foundation at that time, and Lama is the place where Ramdas wrote, Be Here Now. Mm. And Lama was a place where many spiritual teachers and teachings came through. And our drama teachers and music teachers were Neem Karoli Baba devotees. Mm-hmm. And they had just come back from India from being with Maharaji, who died shortly after that. And they brought back a comic book of the story of the life of Mirabai and invited the children. That we were older kids. We were all between, I would say, 11 and 15 to write a musical play based on this comic book. And I was cast as Mirabai, and Philip was cast as Krishna. Mm. And Philip died kind of halfway through. We hadn't yet performed at rehearsals. And we we choreographed the dances. We created the songs, although we used some classical Indian um, chants and bhajans as well. And um, by the... So somebody else filled in for Krishna, a girl, actually. And by the time we performed the opening of this play... I was so stripped by grief and so broken open that when I went on stage, which was the Lama Dome, if anyone's been to Lama Foundation, it's this giant adobe and wood and glass structure where where hundreds of thousands of hours of spiritual practice have happened over the last 50 years. And I entered into that dome dressed in this white wedding sari and... I didn't think of myself as a singer. I did think of myself as a poet. I was a poet from Mm -hmm. the time I could write. But when I opened my mouth to sing these love songs to Krishna, this voice came through that had never been there before and probably has never been there quite (laughs) since. But with that voice came this sense of intimacy with who Mirabai is. Mm. I don't want to say was historically, but her deep devotion to love itself. And that longing, that love longing, that just changed everything for me and start launched me on my spiritual path. And then later that summer, I was visiting Ramdas in New York. I was on kind of on my own, you know, hooked up with different spiritual pilgrims, one particular family, which is a whole other story, because I was ended up being abused by the father. But went to New York to be with Ramdas, who was with Joya at the time, Majaya Sati Bhagavati, before he denounced her. I don't even know right, about all said, that. But oh, my goodness. Quite a story. <laughs> Egg on my beard from, what was that magazine? Anyway, and Ramdas gave me the name Mirabai. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Because it was obvious I had this kind of passionate, devotional, poetic nature. Do you have uh, Ananda Maimai in your book? I do. Let's talk about her a little bit. The bliss-drenched mother. Mm-hmm. <sighs> She's another wisdom being that's been with me since my early teens when I first saw her picture. John, did you ever meet her? Uh, my name is John Koik. And uh, Mirabai, you mentioned Ananda Moyama. The great um, Yogananda called her the bliss permeated mother. And in 1970, I went to my teacher training course with Maharshi Mahesh Yogi in Rishikesh. And the ashram was not yet ready for the course. So we were waiting around in Delhi for five or six days. And I was asked to go with a group to give her flowers on behalf of Maharshi, who was a great friend. She also knew Maharshi's master, Gurudev. So we went to the ashram, and it was such a, a striking contrast from the streets of Delhi, which, let's say, they're not really orderly. And all of a sudden, we walked into this courtyard and into this this facility, and it was just immaculately clean, 
It's all beautifully shiny and flowers everywhere. And we went into a, a sort of an outdoor meeting area where Ananda Moyama was speaking to a group of people. They were sitting on the ground and she was talking. She speaks in Bengali because she's from Benares. So I had a chance to go up and give her Maharshi's greetings and I had a garland. So I put the garland around her neck and then she said something in Bengali and then someone beside her said, you know, please lower your head. So I lowered my head and she took the garland off and put it around my neck. It was very sweet. And at that time, she was, I think, in her early 80s, but she was still just magnificent. She had long black hair and this ageless, beautiful face. And then she said something else, and somebody gave her three oranges, and then she put the three oranges in my hands. (laughs) And then after our teacher training course, which lasted three months, we went to um, see her at another one of her ashrams in, in Hardivar, and this time I didn't give her a flower or anything, but again, we, we got to listen to her. And it was, for me, a fulfillment of a great wish because for many years, many of us had, had just deeply admired, sort of mesmerized. Her beauty was mm. something celestial. Yeah. And I even had a, once I had a poster, the posters in my room. So that's my story of Ananda Moyama. Nice. Yeah, so um, so now John told us about his personal experience, but like, tell us a bit more about her. Fill out some details. Can I read a little something? Please, yes. So first I want to read a quote from Ramdas about mm-hmm. her, because he also was with her. Yeah. Um, Ramdas being my kind of lifelong spiritual uncle, I right. would call him. Uh, pretty much everybody knows who he is. He's, he wrote Be Here Now. He used to be Richard Alpert. And he was with Timothy Leary back in the old days. Their book was one of my original inspirations. <laughs> As it was for so many people. Oh, that book, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. a Tibetan book of the dead thing. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So Ramda says about Ananda Mayama, well, now I know it's Ananda Moyama. Um, As she played out the lila of child, wife, and spiritual guide, she manifested from moment to moment the different aspects of the mother, the peaceful serenity of Uma, goddess of the dawn, the loving delights of Radha, Krishna's playful consort, Kali's protective fierceness, Sita's dharmic perfection, and the mystical energy of Shakti, the manifest cosmos. Hmm. So I'm just going to read a little bit here. When I was 16, I was pretty sure I'd be enlightened by 19. And I was shocked when I I still wasn't a fully realized being by 22. (laughs) Now, in my mid-50s, I'm being called to teach the Dharma, but I am nowhere near where I thought I would be. I still find myself getting caught by some of the booby traps my ego is so skillful at setting for me, such as feeling like I'm never enough and always too much. I am alternately impatient with other people's neuroses and inclined to take things too personally. The separate self is a practical joke I keep falling for. The image I always held of the perfectly awakened woman was the 20th century Indian saint Ananda Mayama, bliss permeated mother, according to Yogananda, who had been roused from the dream of a separate self and left her ego behind. Ma was wild for God. She frequently fell into ecstatic raptures, and when she wasn't in a trance, she was busy dispensing divine wisdom, meeting each pilgrim and devotee exactly where they were along the spectrum of awakening directly apprehending their souls and coming up with the perfect solution to their specific spiritual conundrums. 
There's nothing wrong and many things right about looking to certain great beings as exemplars of states of consciousness to which we aspire. The trouble lies in our preconceived notions of what it means to be awake. I will never be Anandamayama. I live in a different time and belong to a different culture than the one that gave rise to that majestic being. But I, in my way, just as you, in your way, am already and always an embodiment of divine wisdom. No, I am not equating my neurotic little self with the divine mother incarnate. I am identifying here with my true self, and it is your true self I am speaking to when I speak to you. Nice. Yeah, this brings up an interesting point, which is that we should never belittle ourselves by comparing ourselves with somebody great like that and think that, you know, I'm just a chump. I'll never amount to anything. We're all instruments of the divine and each sense organ of the infinite, as it were, has its function. The nose isn't going to be the ear, isn't going to be the eye or whatever. So we just live out our dharma as best we can, live out our particular function, that with which we're gifted, and do that. And then things go well. Exactly. And so the whole, as I said, self-improvement project foiled by the human condition is, I think, one of those masculine feminine shifts that are happening that I hope will come into balance. So I'm not anti-rigorous spiritual discipline, Mm -hmm. but if it's used as a weapon to hurt ourselves, it's counterproductive to awakening and to service in the world. If we are waiting to be some kind of perfected, cleansed beings that have no um foibles yeah and and no neuroses and uh, all of those things that come along with the human condition before we can step up and be of service for instance in this world then um we will never uh make use of ourselves to alleviate suffering we come as we are and and the landscape of what we have is holy land Mm -hmm. it's holy ground all of it yeah Besides which, if you even if you get to know closely some of these great spiritual luminaries, famous people, you discover that they have their idiosyncrasies and you know they have their human, you know, maybe shortcomings. If we want to look at it that way, they're people. And it's good to be kind of realistic about things and um, realize that we're okay as we are, even though there's plenty of room for improvement. One thing I want to get into is. We often hear about the masculine domination of the world and how it's resulted in environmental degradation and all kinds of other problems and how there seems to be a shift taking place and the, the divine feminine is, is rising. So let's get into the social implications a little bit of that and what we mean by the, the masculine domination and what a more feminine-based world consciousness would look like. So one of the artifacts of the masculine paradigm that I think has done harm is its emphasis on transcendence and disembodiment. Mm. You know, we've talked about it earlier, that the, this world is Maya illusion in the so-called Eastern traditions and non-Western traditions and mm. in the Judeo-Christian traditions that somehow this world is, is a veil of tears and we, will, we aspire to enter some heavenly realm when yeah. we die, hopefully not too yeah, soon. Get out of here as soon as possible. Yes, right? because this is problematic, life in a body. So with this emphasis on disembodiment and on leaving the pesky little physicality in the dust, it opens the way to exploitation of the earth herself. Mm -hmm. 
Because if the, if the world is an illusion right. to be transcended, then, and the body is a problem to be solved mm-hmm. or to be um, purified into oblivion, mm-hmm. then that opens up. Well, let me help you rephrase it. And not only if the world's an illusion, but if the world is just insentient stuff, rocks and oil and, you know, things that we can just um, exploit. If it's devoid of any kind of um, in, in, innate divinity, yes. then do it. We can do what we want with it. It's, it's just dumb stuff. That was so beautifully said, Rick. Thank, Thank you. you. That's <laughs> way better than I was able to say it. Exactly. And so I think that it has that the masculine spiritual model, a religious model, has enabled, which is about disembodiment, has mm-hmm. enabled us to exploit the earth yeah. herself. Whereas the feminine reclaiming of the body is holy. And of, uh, of the earth as a beloved relative mm-hmm. to be cherished awakens all of us of all genders to protect this beloved, cherished relative, Mother Earth or Sister Earth, or as Francis of Assisi calls her, our sister Mother Earth, uh-huh. with all our hearts. Mm. Or even seeing her as a lover. If the mother paradigm evokes problematic feelings, which it does for a lot of people, women and men, you know, how about lover? Wherever you are on the gender spectrum, to feel this sense of deep love and attraction and fierce protectiveness for her. And it's rising everywhere. That love of the mother as, or the earth as a cherished relative is engaging all of us from a heart level. So that it's, we're not just engineering solution, technical solutions to the problems of the climate catastrophe but actually we're coming from a place of personal, intimate, profound love and the sense of, of seven generations behind us of ancestors who had cultivated a direct relationship with the earth and seven generations ahead of our great-great-great-great-grandchildren who are going to be stewarding this mm. uh, earth that we, that we are now cherishing and protecting yeah hopefully they will be there are kids in the climate strikes with placards saying you'll die of old age i'll die of climate change and there's a lot of people who think that there won't be anybody around in 100 years at the rate things are going some people have that perspective and and if we don't survive as a human species what i feel like we need and i know a lot of my spiritual companions out there are echoing this is midwives for the death for the chaos. Yes, the doulas, the people can stay in their hearts and in their bodies and be present for what is to unfold, even if it results in the demise of the human species. Let's do it with our hearts wide open and tending each other with loving care along the way, just as, as those of us who sit at the bedside of the dying do with our loved ones as they take their last breaths. I've heard you speak of the feminine as sort of wild and unpredictable and mm-hmm. stirring things up. Speaker after speaker at the SAND conference, was it was almost like a shared assumption that we're really heading into some turbulent waters, yeah. that there's going to be a lot of craziness and stuff. And I wonder if that is characteristic of the upwelling of the feminine in oh, world consciousness. very insightful, Rick. I love that. <laughs> you keep complimenting me. I, I love that. Go having my a, head. <laughs> a, good, a good interviewer is, is a beautiful thing. That is such an insight, and I'm totally stealing it, and I'm going to use it in the future. 
I think that's right. I copyrighted it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'll give you credit. Okay. The feminine's very good at sharing the glory. So I think that there is something true about that, that maybe that's why there is this uprising of the feminine, because that is the power, that's the superpower that is going to be needed to collectively navigate these turbulent times. And that the nature of the feminine is not only mercy and compassion and loving kindness, but also a kind of wildness. And here's what I want to say about that. The feminine is at home in those spaces of wildness, mm. in spaces of ambiguity, in liminal spaces. What does liminal mean? So by liminal, I mean the in-between no. um, threshold spaces mm-hmm. where it, the old is clearly crumbling and dying right. and falling away. Phase transition spaces. Yeah. Yes, but the new is not yet fully formed. Mm. And that we... We, meaning, again, the feminine in all of us, have a capacity for holding paradox, uh, mystery, darkness. You know, yesterday you you kind of... um, Asked you a question. Almost jokingly, yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? Asked me a question, like, I felt like it was... It was the dude playing devil's advocate to the... It was a bit of a devil's... The question I asked her was, we often hear about the dark side of the masculine and how it's raping the world and all this stuff. Is there a dark side to the feminine which would emerge if the feminine were to become as predominant as the masculine has been? Some guy actually came up to me afterwards and said there have been matriarchal societies in which male sacrifice was like part of the routine. (laughs) That's dark. (laughs) So I had two answers to that. So the first one is the answer I gave you at the time and the other one was one that bubbled up this morning. So my first answer was that is such a guy question to ask. Mm -hmm. It felt dualistic. It felt like, so what about, you know, us? Or it's like, it's like the whiteness question. Uh, Never mind. I don't want to get, go down that rabbit hole. I do, but we don't have time. So I felt like it was a non-question question. It was a Mm -hmm. question just to stir the pot, but not. sort of academic, you know. Or even academic, yeah. You know, just curious. But it's also predicated on a certain kind of understanding of good and bad so, like, if you're having a fight with your with your partner and, and they tell you that you've done something that's bothered them and then they say, well, you've done this, rather than holding space for them. And my sense is the masculine needs to hold space for the feminine right now. He, whoever he is, in all the forms, including inside ourselves as women, need to be quiet and allow the feminine voice to emerge and not not only not worry about what it's going to look like if the feminine dominates right now, but encourage the domination of the feminine because of thousands of years of patriarchy that have so skewed and screwed things up. Yeah. Well, I wasn't worried about it, and I'm happy that the pendulum is swinging. I was just curious if in the traditional understandings there is something, a shadow side to the feminine as there is to the masculine. Okay, so then here's the other answer that percolated, bubbled up in my heart and consciousness this morning, which is, What's the dark side of the feminine? The feminine is all about darkness. It's the dark mother. It's all about mystery and creative chaos. Mm. And so that's my answer. That's the dark side of the feminine is all of it. We abide in the dark. In Taoism, yin is the dark. And that's the creative ground from which all life emerges. And it can't all be tidy and pretty and sweet. 
And I have found that in myself because I was a sort of tidy, sweet girl till I was 40. And my daughter died. And then I wasn't tidy and sweet and girlish anymore. You know, then I came, I dropped into my fierce feminine, into that wild space of mystery. Do you advocate any kind of practices or anything that Mm -hmm. you've gleaned from your study of all the female mystics that others can, you know, even hearing this interview Mm -hmm. could actually get into? Yeah, at the end of every chapter, I have a practice Mm -hmm. that I offer to people. But one of my primary spiritual practices has been writing. So writing a prompt at the top of either the page or the, the computer screen and then setting a timer for 10 minutes, say, and allowing whatever arises to arise in response to that prompt with one maybe structural gesture to myself, which is stay grounded in the body, mm-hmm. avoid abstraction, and keep it sensory and sensual and physical and memory and story. And so I wrote a, a memoir called Caravan of No Despair mm-hmm. about the death of my daughter, also about growing up in the counterculture of the 70s and meeting all these spiritual teachers as a, as a teenager, and then how translating the Christian mystics saved my life during this time of mourning. But it's not all sad. In fact, a lot of it is funny and warm and human. Like you. And thank you. But the way that I wrote the entire memoir was with this writing practice of giving myself prompts and timed writing and allowing whatever emerged to emerge. Of course, then I crafted it and shaped it and distilled and distilled and distilled to its essence. I didn't leave it like this big journal writing rush. But that's how it began, with giving myself permission for the Shakti, the the primordial feminine energy of life, to come coursing through me and step out of the way and see what she had to say. So writing for me is a spiritual practice. And I received the transmission of that practice from Natalie Goldberg, who was my actual English teacher at the Hippie Free School in Taos when I was 12, when Pema Chodron was our social studies teacher. Oh, cool. And Ramdas and Haridas Baba and Taos Pueblo elders all came through our school. Wow, wish I'd gone to that school. I might not have dropped out. Well, and it's why I'm so <laughs> at home in all of these spiritual traditions, because that's how I was raised. I'm not a renegade from the American Baptist Church or something. I, you know, I grew up in this inter-spiritual church yeah. in a way, although it had no walls. The world is getting more and more that way. I don't know if mm-hmm. it might take a long time before our school system is that way, but with the internet and everything, there's just such a mishmash these days of things you can get exposed to, uh, and it's hard to keep people in boxes anymore. And that kind of multiple spiritual belonging does not preclude actual transformational depth of encounter with the jewels of all of these wisdom traditions. Yeah. One way I like to think of it is, you know, the, the, the metaphor of digging one deep well rather than 10 shallow wells. Well, how about using 10 tools to dig one deep well? I like that. <laughs> Lots of tools, yeah. Sometimes you need a pickaxe, sometimes a shovel, sometimes right. a jackhammer. Whatever. And you know what else? What? You can't all one dude do all that. Yeah. It, we, need a, we need a community to get that well dug. Yeah. One thing that was a, an interesting observation last night at the concluding session of the Science and Non-Duality Conference um, which I've been to for 10 years in a row now, was that um, Zaya, the, one of the main organizers, said some years back 
it was just 90% white dudes on stage giving talks. And that now it was this tremendous mixture of quite a wide age spectrum, color spectrum, gender spectrum. And there was also a kind of a, I mean, the the original title, Science and Non-Duality, that sounds kind of dry. And there was a very sort of heavy Advaita or Neo-Advaita presence in the beginning. And now there's, there's just tremendous heart and social activism and still Advaita in there, but just um, yeah. much more of a full-bodied, multi-frequency scene. And embodied. Yeah. And therefore feminine and rooted. Yeah. And I'm not saying that just to refer to the Science of Non-Duality Conference, but that as a representative of the broader spiritual yes. culture. Exactly. It is. It's a beautiful microcosm of what's happening. Yeah. So, yes, let's make some concluding remarks. Do you do any um, living female saints in here or just all the past ones? I don't call them saints. Or whatever. Yeah, mystics, because... Mystics. Um, okay, mystics, great. I definitely interview and have conversations with a lot of living teachers. Mm-hmm. And in each case, what I asked them for was a vulnerable story so that we could show people that the path of awakening and service in this world is not about some idealized notion of perfection from that old patriarchal model, Mm -hmm. but rather to be a full, complete human human is intimately entwined with this path of awakening and being of service to others. So I, for instance, um, Gangaji, Mm -hmm. I speak to, and she tells about having her first period, you know, and then menopause. Like, those are really intimate, vulnerable things to talk about. And then all the the spaces in between where where sexuality was uh, entwined with awakening. Mm. So, you know, they don't get asked questions like that very often, and they were happy to talk about it. Uh, Sultram Alioni, Lama Sultram, Mm -hmm. uh, spoke about grieving her husband, who died very suddenly in in his 50s Mm. when they were in the middle of their life together. Yeah. And what that path of grief was like and how, as it was for me with my daughter, ultimately became a way of disarming the heart so that we could be available to the suffering of the world in a way that we never had been before. So those are the kinds of stories that I talk about. Um, Miranda McPherson, who who had experienced this this kind of awakening in Ramana's cave where where it was like she really got that, that there is no self, returned to her devotional heart very spontaneously while running in the woods in the midst of her life falling apart Mm. and then reclaimed that embodied devotion once again that had fallen away in this into this non-dual nothingness that she went through in her original awakening and it was returning to her body that um completed that circuit in a way so those are the kinds of stories i tell they're vulnerable they're grounded, they're real. Teresa of Avila said, God lives among the pots and pans. And these are the, the stories that I was looking for, for in these living women that I was able to speak with, some of whom are not famous or known. Right. God lives not only among the pots and pans, but in everything. You know, we were talking earlier about treating the world as a, as a thing, as a rock. I can remember 50 55 years ago, sometimes looking at the world and just seeing it as being so drab and dead and kind of Mm -hmm. depressing and lifeless. An existential crisis? Yeah, perhaps so. But now it's like everything is alive and the divine is in everything. It's subtle for me, but 
you realize that it's there in every little fabric of the couch cushion and, you know, bit of the paper and, and everything else. The divine is humming away and, and all that. And so we're just like fish swimming in this ocean of, of divinity. And that brings with it a softness that I think would be characterized as feminine. And a kind of childlike wonderment. Yeah, yeah. And awe. Good. Well, that's a good note to end on. So thanks, Mirabai. Thank you, Rick. Glad we got to do this. What a joy. Really great. Thank you, those who have been listening or watching. Yes, thank you. We'll see you for the next one, whatever it will be. I have no idea at this point at what order we're going to release these videos, but uh, glad you could join us and um, hope to meet you in person one day. One of the cool things about the SAND conference is that every few minutes someone would come up to you and say, Oh, I just wanted to meet you in person. You know, I've been watching you for years. You're always in my living room or in my kitchen or whatever. And it was really wonderful seeing flesh and blood faces and people that I could hug. That's so great. So great. Thanks. See you next time.